Joel is, as I said, a rather obscure prophet in the sense that we don't know very much about him. His prophecies are very, very important, though. So it's not that he's a minor prophet in the sense that he doesn't have much to say. He has a great deal to say, and especially about the end times. And so we'll be talking about that quite a bit as we go through this relatively short book. But the prophet himself uh, doesn't really give us a whole lot of information about either his own lineage or the time in which he wrote. There's nothing mentioned in his book that gives us any indication as to when he was alive and writing these particular words of prophecy. There's no mention of any of the kings of Judah. We know that though he was from Judah uh, and was very familiar with the temple in Jerusalem, and he mentions both the Ju uh, Jerusalem and the temple and also uh, the fact that he was speaking to the house of Judah, but that's all we know. We know that he has one man's name given to us in his lineage, which happens to be his father's name, and that is Pethuel, but we don't know anything about Pethuel either. So again, his heritage is not really given, or lineage is not given to us. Most of the theologians that uh, have studied these things imply that he was most likely a prophet sometime around the time of the King Joash, which would date this prophecy around 835 B.C., if that's the case. Now, you may remember in the story of the kings of Judah, found in Second Chronicles, Joash came to the throne at the age of seven years old. And he has an interesting story that uh, basically gives us some idea about if that is the time in which Joel was writing, why Joel would be writing the things that he did do with regard to uh, the events that he describes in this book. It's um, important for us to know that um, as far as we can tell, the book of Joel, if it was written around that time, was written because of the terrible things that had taken place just prior to Joash's coming to the throne. Joash was the son of Ahaziah, the king of Israel, Judah rather, who had only been on the throne for a year. And he was assassinated. And when he was assassinated, his mother, Athaliah, took the throne to herself. And in the process, she made sure that none of Ahaziah's sons remained alive. She murdered every one of Ahaziah's sons, or Ahaziah's sons, rather, except for one. And the reason she didn't have him assassinated was because he was hidden by his nurse and successfully was able to be brought to the temple where uh, the priest Jehoiada kept him secretly for six years and then in his seventh year he was introduced to the nation as the proper king of Israel. But it was years of the time that Athaliah reigned as queen of Israel illegally 
that many, many things had taken place that were devastating to the nation of Judah. And once she was gone, there was a great deal of reform under Joash and by the leading of Jehoiada, the high priest. So they were able to restore much of what had been taken away under Athaliah's reign. But it was a very, very difficult time indeed for the people of Judah. And that appears to be the time frame in which we find, again, uh, Joel writing this great prophecy of the Old Testament. Again, it's only three chapters long, but it's filled with great details, both with regard to his contemporary setting and also, more importantly, about the very last days. In fact, Joel is going to mention what is known prophetically as the Day of the Lord several times in this short book, more times than any one prophet gave to that particular time frame is given by Joel here in these three chapters. So we're going to be looking at, it's a central theme really of the prophecy of Joel, the day of the Lord. And we'll define that as we get further on. But here we have Joel again speaking to the nation of Judah and dealing with a very, very important event that had apparently just taken place. Now, oftentimes, the Old Testament prophets would give their prophecies and there would be a near fulfillment of their prophecy and also a future fulfillment, both a near and far fulfillment. Well, Joel doesn't really give any prophecy regarding a near fulfillment of anything, but he does talk about a very, very important thing that was again happening in his day and the people that he was addressing in his day were very um, aware of what he was talking about. And that event that I've mentioned is a terrible plague of locusts that had come into the land and devastated everything. And so he's going to be talking about that in the several chapters that we're going to be looking at here, first here in chapter 1 and also in chapter 2, but there are also many, many things that he's going to be talking about that will be relating to those things that will happen only in a future time. In fact, Joel is quoted by one New Testament writer. Luke is the writer, but Peter is the one who actually quoted Joel. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, Peter refers to Joel's prophecy as it relates to what was happening in Peter's day on the day of Pentecost. And we'll be looking at that as well in another time of study later on as we move forward in this great book. But here we are again, chapter 1, book of Joel, beginning with verse 1, where he says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And again, that's all we know. Nothing more is said. I wish that we could have had more details as many of the other Old Testament prophets give a great deal more information about themselves or the times in which they lived. But it's just guesswork at this point. And from internal evidence, again, we think that it is very most likely that it happened around the year 835 B.C. that he wrote this. There are some scholars who say, no, it had to have been written after the Babylonian captivity, which would have placed this book as a post-exilic prophecy. I don't believe that that's necessarily 
improper for us to consider, but I don't think it's really very much as likely, at least, as the other assumption that has been made with regard to this date that I've mentioned. 835 B.C. seems to be a very, very good likelihood. So if that is the case, he is actually the very first of the prophets of the Old Testament to be recorded in the Word of God. He says in verse 2, Hear this, you elders, and give ear all the inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. He's saying that what you have just experienced, has there ever been anything like it? And the obvious assumption is, the obvious answer is no. Nothing like this has ever happened before. And I'm reminded when Jesus, when he was talking about the tribulation that was to come on to the earth in the last days, he told his disciples that in that day, nothing like it will have ever happened, nor will there ever be anything after that. And he's saying this very much like what Jesus said here in this prophetic word of Joel. Tell your children about it. Tell your children's children. And let their children be made aware of it. You know how important it is for us to tell our children about what it is that we believe. Our grandchildren, our next generation needs to know. And so it's important that we convey the truths of the Word of God to that next generation. And it's what God inspired His people to do in the Old Testament Scriptures, especially in the books of Moses' writings, the Pentateuch, the five books of the first five books of the Bible. He tells us in many places throughout those several books written by Moses that they would convey the things that they had experienced to the next generation and the generations following. It was important that they would tell the children so that the truth of God's word could be carried on to the next generation. So that's still important today and it's so very, very needful, especially in our day when we see so many who would argue just the opposite. And they don't want the word of God to be made known to your children. And so when we have the opportunity, let us be mindful that the world is resisting that, but we should be very firm in our obedience to what God tells us with regard to the need to tell the next generation of people so that they can continue the story and so that it won't die out. And fortunately for us, the Jews did a good job of that year after year decade after decade, the next generations would come and they would be well aware of the things that had taken place. The history was well known. The Word of God was written. The Book of Psalms and and all throughout the, the Old Testament, we're reminded of the, the history of the nation of Israel. And we have the New Testament now as well, written for that same reason, with that same goal in mind. Well, verse 4 continues, What the chewing locust left... The swarming locust is eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust is eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust is eaten. He's describing here that event that we've been mentioning, that it was an invasion of locusts into the land. And 
there are four different types of locusts mentioned here, and apparently they describe the various four stages of the development of the locust, from the egg, and then into the larval state, and then into the first molting state, and then finally into the state where they are able to fly and move on to new territory. But each one of those various stages of the development of a locust involve a very, very uh, uh, strong propensity for them to consume everything in their sight. It's interesting that in the book of Proverbs, we find that the locusts have no king, the writer of Proverbs says, and yet they go uh, forward in ranks. And that was the case with the locust invasions that have been recorded throughout all of history that we do have records of. In fact, you may remember just last year, there were more than one case of large numbers of locusts that had swept through the territory and just consumed everything in their path. And that is what locusts do. They eat everything that's there. And we'll see that referred to by Joel more than uh, this one time. He mentions it often throughout the text that we have uh, in this great prophetic book. But he mentions those various stages of the, the locusts that have invaded the land. And he goes on to say in verse 5, Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all of you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. That's the destructive power described poetically here by Joel in this last few verses. He says that they've cut off even the vines so that there's no more wine available to drink. They've cut off everything in the land. They've eaten all of the, the vines and the fig trees and they stripped them bare and, and all the branches are made white. In other words, even the bark is gone. Take note of the fact that he says, a nation has come up against my land in verse 6. And then he says in verse 7, he has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. The vine and the fig tree are pictures or types of the nation of Israel, the entire nation, all 12 tribes. And here, Joel is saying that locusts have devoured my land and mentions the vine and the fig tree also as statements of uh, typology where we say the word that is used is a picture of that which he is describing. And so the vine is the nation of Israel. The fig tree is the nation of Israel. The land is the nation of Israel. And they are used throughout the word of God in that very sense uh, so that when you read in Matthew's Gospel, for instance, in chapter 24, which I've mentioned, Jesus talking about there's coming a time when you see the fig tree blossom. That is a reference to the nation of Israel, and it is so throughout the Word of God. And we'll be looking at that as well when we get to that portion of Scripture where in this passage uh, that we're looking at today, he's talking about the local events 
But he's going to be talking about the day of the Lord as well. And we'll be looking at that very specifically with regard to the fig tree that blossoms in the last days. Verse 8 says, Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. It's a terrible time of grief, in other words. The, the poor virgin who lost the opportunity to become a married woman because her husband was taken away from her prematurely before they were able to become married and the wedding was consummated. Lament like a virgin who was in sackcloth because of such a terrible event. That is a description of terrible sorrow that would have come upon the people in this very, very, very difficult time because of the overwhelming uh, effect of the locust invasion. He says in verse 9, the grain offering and the drink offering had been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. The field is wasted. The land mourns for the grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Notice how it has affected every element of their society. They are an agricultural society in this day. And and the, the, the produce was part of what made them so prosperous. And it was all just simply wiped away in that one simple uh, moment of time when the locusts swept through the land. He says again in verse 10, The field is wasted, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined, the new wine is dried up, the oil fails. Continuing on in verse 11, he says, Be ashamed, you farmers, Wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. Consider how devastating this must have been for them. And this is how important all of this was to the people for their very survival. And it was all taken away. For the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. Verse 12 says, The vine has dried up, and the fig tree has withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. That's probably a poor translation. It may have been more likely that it was an orange or some other fruit tree. And all the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. Can you imagine how desperate they must have been and how terrible this consequence of such great devastation must have been for them as an agrarian society and not having any produce and it was a very, very difficult time indeed. Joel goes on to continue to say, Gird yourselves, in verse 13, and lament, you priests, wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Even that amount of offerings that were available normally for the priest to offer to the Lord were no longer available. It was a time of great trouble. Consecrate a fast, he says in verse 14. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to your God. Consecrate a fast. Joel is here asking the people to fast for a particular period of time as part of their consecration to the Lord. They were indeed, <clears throat> excuse me, in great trouble and all the land was devastated and the people 
needed to come together and cry out to their God in desperation. In the prayer that they would make to their Lord, they would be wanting to ask the Lord for mercy and grace and to restore what the locust had eaten. Friends, that is something that I believe is central to what we all are needing to consider in this present day. There is a sense in which the locust has indeed eaten a great deal of all that we used to have in this land, both spiritually and physically. And we are in desperate shape in our own country as well. Perhaps not the way that is described here by all of these locusts that have eaten away everything in the land. But there is a sense in which we have indeed come to that place where we've lost a great deal of what we once had as a people in this nation, which once was a nation under God. We are no longer that same nation. You all are aware of that. And it is, I believe, time for God's judgment upon this land because we have turned from God. We have allowed uh, those things that have been such a destructive force to take over in our land. And it is getting, by the hour, worse and worse, to the point where I believe there is no turning back and that there is no other answer that I can see other than the fact that there must be judgment coming upon us. And if it does indeed come upon us, it will be because we are deserving of it. Take a look at whatever is happening around you. And there are many, many different things that you can cite as examples. One of the things that we're dealing with in our local uh, area in this state of Maine is the abortion issue that many are very, very concerned about. I hope that you all are as well. And it is going to be just on this next Monday when the Judicial Committee will get together and determine whether this bill, which is known as LD 1619, will go forward for the legislative body to approve or disapprove. This legislation is wicked legislation that allows abortion even up to the day of birth. It is absolutely w wicked to the core. And we need to oppose it. And several of us will be going to Augusta to do just that, to state our testimony before the Judicial Committee in the hopes that it will turn the hearts of at least some of those legislators who are ready to vote this bill into law. We're praying fervently for that not to happen. And we're hoping that many people will show up in opposition to that bill. But I'm also prayerful and hoping that many people will fast on that day, just as Joel is asking his people in his day to fast and call a sacred assembly. So too, I believe it is a very important thing for us to consider as well. And I am going to mention that again on Sunday, that I would ask everyone in my hearing to consider fasting during that day of uh, confrontation between those who are pro-life and those who want to extend this abortion to such an extent as they want to do in this state. It will make, if it is passed, this state to be perhaps the most radical abortion state 
in our country. I don't want to see that. And we need God on our side. He is on our side. But we need the legislators on our side as well to turn from such a wicked scheme that has been propagated by our great governor, Janet Mills. This is recorded, so I'm, I'm sure that this is going to be something that can be publicly heard. I don't care if it is publicly heard by the wrong people or the right people. I want it to be known where I stand, and I hope that you're willing to stand with me. Joel says, this is a terrible situation, and it is justifying the need for the people to come together to consecrate a fast. It's one of the few places in the Word of God where the prophet asks the people to enter into a time of fast. Now, there is no place in the Word of God except for one that I'm aware of where God is actually the one who states this request for fasting. And that one time is actually found in chapter 2 of Joel's prophecy. Here it is Joel speaking, cry out to the people and, and gather them together and in, invite them to join together with all the people to fast and pray and to cry out to their God. Later on, as I said in chapter 2, Joel says that God himself speaks these very words, calling for a fast. And it's, as far as I know, the only time in the Word of God where God is said to call for a fast. Fasting is good. God doesn't deny that we shouldn't or should not fast. He doesn't say that it has no value. It does have great value. And it's something that we see in the Word of God that is used throughout the Old Testament in particular and in the New Testament as a means by which we can afflict our souls and come together in a time of commitment to our God. And it is basically a way of our being able to say to God, Lord, I'm willing to give up this, which is normally relatively important to me, so that I can focus my time with you on this particular issue. That's a good reason to fast. Alas for the day, verse 15, and this is where we're going to get to our day. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? Listen, Joel is saying there is coming a day, and he describes it as the day of the Lord. And here, in this passage, he says, it is already at hand. Now, the day of the Lord is going to be mentioned again by Joel, and it is going to be specifically a prophetic word regarding a day that has not yet taken place in his day, nor will not be for many years to come, even up to this present hour. It has not yet come. As a matter of fact, uh, the day of the Lord is referred to in Scripture about 75 times, and Joel is the first one to introduce it to us. But it is a reference to a specific day, a time period, not just a 24-hour day, but a period of time that is referred to as the day of the Lord, an era, a range of years even, that will be attributed to this phrase, the day of the Lord. It is yet future, even in our day. 
Paul the Apostle mentions the day of the Lord, referring to the tribulation period. And he mentions it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'll read that verse that I'm mentioning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, where Paul says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes, so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Take note of the, the fact that Paul says this day will come suddenly as a thief in the night. And it is going to be a day of terrible, terrible destruction. Even though they may think that they're in peace and in safety, they, and notice the fact that he's using the third person, they, because we will not be there, they who are on the earth will know that sudden destruction has come upon them as labor pains. That's a very important phrase also because Jesus in Matthew 24 referred to that very same idea, that concept that Paul spoke of in that statement, that there will be a series of events that will be taking place and they will be as like labor pains coming upon a pregnant woman. And you all are aware that labor pains will take place in the pregnancy, and when they begin, they begin suddenly. But it's not too awfully bad at first. And there's a period of time before the next labor pain takes place. But when that does happen, that intensity is a bit more intense. And then the next one happens. And not only is there more intensity still, but there is a greater or less frequency, a, a, a frequency that is beginning to uh, re, uh, reduce in time so that they happen more frequently and more intensely. That's what labor pains describe. An event or series of events where there is something happening with greater frequency and with greater intensity. Those are the things that Jesus described in Matthew 24 that Paul says are going to come upon the people who are on the earth suddenly and it will happen in the last days because Paul says we will not be there. We, the Christians, will be taken out of the world. But that period of time that is known as the day of the Lord, which Joel introduces, which the other Old Testament prophets speak of, and which Paul and Jesus and James and Peter speak of as well in the New Testament, those things are going to take place over a period of time. And we know that as far as the Word of God is concerning the day of the Lord, it has to do with the period of time known as the tribulation period. It is a seven-year period of time. It begins sometime after the rapture of the church, extends for a period of seven years, and ends when Christ returns to the earth. It's a time of judgment. Joel says that very, very clearly here in verse 15. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. It is a time of judgment, a destruction from the Almighty God. God pours out His wrath 
upon a Christ-rejecting world. We are to expect tribulation in our day as well as in the days that Paul and Peter and James and John lived. But the tribulation that we experience is not the wrath of God. That is uniquely different and it is a very, very specific phrase used to speak of God's judgment during the time that he brings that wrath upon the earth in the day of the Lord. That's the focus of Joel and other prophets. It is our focus as well as we continue through this great book that he is going to mention these events that will take place. But again, he's talking about the things that had taken place in his day and comparing those devastating things to what will be happening in the day of the Lord. So keep in mind, he's using his present day experience to illustrate the terrible times that will be during that terrible day. Verse 16 says, Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? He's talking about his own present experience. And then he goes on in verse 17 to say, The seed shrivels under the clods, storehouses are in shambles, barns are broken down, for the grain has withered. How the animals groan! The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. It's not just humankind. It's all of creation that is groaning as a result of the wrath that is to come. And that's also very, very true and seen in other portions of Scripture where God's wrath is poured out. And we're just now beginning to see that these things are coming very, very near. And that's what Jesus had said. When you see these things begin to take place, keep looking up for your redemption draws near. And one of the things that Jesus said that specifically tell us that the time is near is the fact that he mentions the blossoming of the fig tree. When you see the fig tree blossom, know that the time is right at the door. Friends, that was a reference to the nation of Israel, and Israel has not been a nation since 70 A.D. until 1948, when they became a nation once again and the blossoming of the fig tree has been taking place. Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37, fulfilled by the nation of Israel coming back into the land at that time. And this generation, Jesus said, who sees that blossoming will not perish until all these things have been fulfilled. That's what Jesus has said. Paul agrees. John agrees. The New Testament prophets agree. The Old Testament prophets agree. There is a time coming known as the time of Jacob's trouble. It is a time that is the time of God's wrath that will come upon all who are upon the earth. And that time is a time that none of us should ever want to or expect to have to be alive and present because it's not for us as a church. It's for a Christ-rejecting world and the Jewish nation. Zechariah tells us that only a third of the Jews living at that time will survive the tribulation period. 
John tells us in the book of Revelation that during the first three and a half years of the tribulation, over a quarter of the population of the world will die from war, from devastating earthquakes and all of the other plagues that will come upon the earth during that first three and a half years. And then it's all hell breaking loose in the second three and a half years and even more death and devastation. Terrible time of judgment when the trumpet blasts are sounded during those last three and a half years. What a terrible time it will be for those who are on the earth. Joel is describing some of that in these passages that we're looking at tonight and we'll look at again as we continue our study throughout this book. Verse 19 says, O Lord, to you I cry out, Joel pouring out his heart, for fire has devoured the open pastures and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the open pastures. What a terrible time of desolation in his day. But again, it points to what will take place in the day of the Lord. Then in verse 1 of chapter 2, I'm going to read just the last, the first two verses of chapter 2 because they really set the stage for what we will be looking at next time. It says in verse 1 of chapter 2, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom have never been seen, nor will there ever be any such after them. Again, I'm reminded that's what Jesus said about the tribulation that is coming. Nothing like it has happened, nor will anything ever happen like it again. That is a prophetic word that he's speaking regarding the day of the Lord that is yet to be fulfilled. Notice that he says, blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Now the trumpet was used by the nation of Israel for many different reasons. It was implied in the books of Moses that they were to make two silver trumpets and they were made for a specific purpose, to draw the people together as an assembly, to gather them together whenever any event needed to be uh, dealt with as a people. And sometimes they would sound the trumpet for a joyful assembly. Other times it was for a feast that was to be observed at particular times of the year. There were seven of them. There were also times when they would sound the trumpet with a specific sounding to warn the people that an invasion is about to ensue. And that's what Joel is using here in this passage to sound the trumpet as an alarm, because something very, very devastating is about to occur. And again, he describes it as like an army of people coming, great and strong. But it's not necessarily that. It is more likely that that is a picture that he's drawing from this locust invasion that has just taken place. But he's using it again as a picture of what will take place. Sound the alarm in my holy mountain. Let the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is at hand. 
And again, in verse 2, the description, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. Read the book of Revelation and read the things that are going to take place in the last hours of that terrible time. The sun will be darkened, the moon will be darkened, and there will be terrible, not only darkness, but overwhelming heat and plagues that will take place as the, the various woes are poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. Joel is describing that here, and will be describing more of that later on in chapters 2 and 3. But also in chapter 2, he's going to describe something that is of great importance to us as the church. And that is what Peter will quote in the book of Acts, chapter 2. And we'll get to that as we open this book next time together to read about what Joel says that is going to take place, that has already taken place, at least a portion of it, not all of it, but he's going to speak about that which has already taken place from our perspective, not his, and it's a great, wonderful thing that he has spoken in this second chapter that we will look at next time. Come and join me, and we'll talk about it next time. Till then, grace and peace, and God bless you.